Welcome to the last month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Pierre Derue joins us now to discuss the decision in Nike Inc. versus Adidas Inc., which was issued on April 9. Pierre, what did the Federal Circuit decide in that case? The Nike case involved a patent owner's motion to amend in which the board held all of the substitute claims unpatentable. And for one of those claims, the board sua sponte relied on prior art outside of the ground asserted by the petitioner in opposing the motion to amend. And notably in this case, the Federal Circuit held that it was proper for the board to independently cite other prior art of record to support a finding of unpatentability in the context of a motion to amend. And this tends to differ from what the board has discretion to do when issuing a final written decision on the original issued claims of a patent that's challenged in an IPR petition. The problem in Nike was that the board made its sua sponte on patentability finding without providing the patent owner with adequate notice or an opportunity to be heard. So the case is now being remanded to allow Nike, the patent owner, to address this new patentability issue that the board raised for the first time in its final written decision. And as you said, this this case shines a light on motions to amend practice before the PTAB. Can you give us some background on the history of this practice? Absolutely. I think it's important to set the table a little bit to place the Nike decision in its proper context. The standards and procedures for motions to amend have been radically evolving over the course of maybe the last eight or so years that IPR proceedings have been available since AIA came into effect. Back in the early days, it was incredibly difficult to get a motion to amend granted. The board put the burden of establishing patentability on the patent owner and routinely found that the patent owner did not meet its burden for a variety of reasons, whether that was based on prior art of record, 112 issues, or even a failure to prove a negative, such as not addressing other prior art known to the patent owner to the extent there even was any. In the In Re Cuozo decision issued on February 4, 2015, so this is a few years into IPR practice, Judge Newman wrote in an opinion that the ability to amend claims in inter partes review proceedings as administered by the PTO is almost entirely illusory. And she noted that to date, as of early 2015, motions to amend had been granted in only two cases. And concerns about motions to amend being an illusory option for patent owners were borne out by the statistics. So back in 2012, when IPRs first became available, over 30% of proceedings involved a motion to amend. And patent owners were clearly thinking that if their original claims were found unpatentable, why not take advantage of the availability of filing a motion to amend to seek narrower claims? In 2013, the number was still fairly high with around 15% of IPRs involving a motion to amend. But by 2014, patent owners had begun to recognize that motions to amend were highly unlikely to succeed. And between 2014 and 2016, the number of IPRs involving a motion to amend plummeted down to about 5%. And in response to these concerns, the USPTO initiated a motions to amend study in 2016 to evaluate these extremely low grant rates. And the data were really quite shocking. It concluded that only 2.2% of motions to amend were being granted in full and only 4.3% granted in part. And so over time, a couple of developments have begun to ease the burden on patent owners, gradually making motions to amend a more viable and more desirable option. 
For example, in 2017, the Federal Circuit's en banc aqua products decision clarified that the petitioner bears the burden of establishing unpatentability of amended claims in an IPR. And this was an enormous change in motion to amend practice. And from a practical standpoint, the patent owner could prepare its motion to amend, to amend around the prior art cited in the petition, and also set forth the 112 support for the amended claims. In some cases, if you designed your claim amendments right, you could even use the petitioner's own statements and expert testimony to support your own basis for patentability. Then the patent owner could sit back and play defense to rebut whatever new material the petitioner came up with during its three-month response period. And as the board's motion to amend study calculated with the burden on the petitioner instead of the patent owner, more motions to amend were filed in 2018 than in any previous year. More recently in 2019 was the board's new pilot program for motions to amend. With a motion to amend, a patent owner can now request preliminary guidance from the board on whether it thinks the proposed amended claims are patentable. This first look from the board comes after the petitioner opposition brief, but before the patent owner reply. But wait, it gets even better. If the board gives you, as a patent owner, a thumbs down, you can revise your amended claims instead of filing a reply brief, and that triggers another round of briefing. So it's possible to get a do-over, which can be a huge benefit, especially if the patent owner doesn't have a pending continuation or divisional application available. So as I said, the latest update from the board's motion to amend study suggests that developments in the law favoring patent owners is working, and it's encouraging a greater number of motions to amend. And Nike Inc. versus Adidas Inc. has a long procedural history that tracks some of these changes. Can you provide a summary of the highlights? What was this case about? As far as IPRs go, this case is ancient. Nike filed its IPR petition in 2012, the first year that IPRs became available, and it's still pending. As you might expect from an Adidas versus Nike case, the patented technology involves sneakers. Specifically, the technology is a textile upper portion of a shoe formed from a unitary one-piece construction. Some features include apertures for threading shoelaces that are formed by omitting stitches rather than cutting holes. During the IPR, the patent owner filed a motion to amend requesting cancellation of all of the original claims and requesting that the board enter four substitute claims 47 through 50. The patent owner raised a long-felt need argument for independent claim 47, asserting that the claim technology completely eliminated the need to cut a textile to form the upper portion of the shoe, whereas the prior art techniques generated a quantity of cutting waste. In the final written decision, however, the board found the substitute claims were unpatentable. And let's remember that this is back in the old days when the burden was on the patent owner to establish patentability. The board concluded that Nike failed to meet its burden of proving patentability over any other prior art known to Nike. Nike made a conclusory statement in its motion to amend that the claims are patentable over, quote, any other prior art known to Nike. And the board said that was facially inadequate. And that's all it took at that time to deny a motion to amend. So it's no wonder that the grant rates were so low. The board also concluded that the substitute claims were unpatentable over an obviousness ground raised by the petitioner. And so Nike appealed to the federal circuit, and this is the first trip for this case to the federal circuit, and Nike raised lots of arguments. First, Nike argued that the burden should be on the petitioner, not on the patent owner, and the court denied that argument, and it would take the later en banc aqua products case to reverse that legal standard. 
Nike also argued that there was a lack of motivation to combine the prior art. That argument was rejected. But then Nike argued that the board improperly disregarded secondary considerations of long-felt need. That argument was accepted, and it required a remand because, as we all know, secondary considerations are part of the obviousness analysis itself and cannot be ignored or treated as an afterthought. Nike also argued that the board improperly denied a motion to amend based on prior art not of record but unknown to the patent owner. And this argument was also accepted. The court held that the board applied an unreasonable standard and that Nike's representation should have been accepted, absent any indication of a lack of candor. And then finally, Nike argued that the board did not consider the dependent claim separately, setting forth the reasons for unpatentability. And this is the important point that carries through to our case from last month. The Federal Circuit noted, for example, that the basis for unpatentability for Claim 49 which covers omitting stitches for making the apertures to thread shoelaces, was unclear. And the court stated that it very well may be that the board intended to convey that Claim 49 was obvious in light of prior art reference Nishida because skipping stitches to form apertures, even though not expressly disclosed in the reference, was a well-known technique in the art. But the board did not articulate those findings. And so the board was charged with remedying that deficiency in its decision on remand. And so the case went back down to the board. Aqua Products, that decision came down, shifting the burden of proving unpatentability for amended claims to the petitioner. So the parties filed supplemental briefs concerning that case, but otherwise no new evidence or prior art grounds were submitted. So the board needed to articulate its findings for why stitch skipping was obvious, even though it wasn't disclosed in the petitioner's asserted reference. And so what did the board do? Well, the board hunted through the record and found another reference disclosing this stitch skipping and used it to remedy that deficiency in the petitioner's prior art ground. Nobody in the case had cited that reference for that purpose. So this was an entirely sua sponte finding in the final written decision. Neither party had expected it. So Nike appealed again, and that appeal led to the decision that issued last month at the Federal Circuit. And the Federal Circuit issued a substantial evidence affirmance for rejecting, for example, a long-felt need argument. But what was the court to do about that new reference raised for the first time in the final written decision to justify finding Claim 49 unpatentable? Aqua Products provided some guidance on the board's powers in this context, but it didn't resolve all issues. For example, if a petitioner stops participating in an IPR such that a motion to amend is going unopposed, the en banc federal circuit and APA products endorsed having the board justify a finding of unpatentability based on evidence of record. But what if the petitioner is still in the case, like Adidas was here? In that situation, as Judge Toronto's dissent pointed out in Aqua Products, there's still an open question of whether the board can sua sponte identify patentability issues for amended claims based on the prior art of record. So the critical holding of this Nike case is that, yes, it's proper for the board to do that. And the operative quote was, we hold today that the board may sua sponte identify a patentability issue for a proposed substitute claim based on the prior art of record. 
And the reasoning behind this is that amended claims have not already gone through prosecution before an examiner. And so there is some concern that the USPTO should not be letting amended claims issue without some agency scrutiny. If the board does not find a petitioner's unpatentability ground persuasive, but nevertheless sees patentability deficiencies when collectively looking at the record as a whole, the court seems to think that public policy does not support letting the patent owner walk away with relatively unvetted claims. So now we know that the board can sui sponte raise new patentability issues based on the evidence of record. And the next question is simply what process or procedure does the board need to follow? Can it cite the new evidence for the first time in a final written decision to the party's great surprise? The answer is a very clear no. The Federal Circuit recounted a number of previous decisions holding that when the board decides to change theories or raise new issues in a case, the Administrative Procedure Act requires reasonable notice and an opportunity to respond. And because the board did not do so in this case, the Nike case is headed back down to the board for further proceedings on that one claim, Claim 49. So this 2012 IPR will continue to endure, and who knows, maybe we'll see it back up at the Federal Circuit again in a couple of years. And in the meantime, how do you think this decision could affect motions to amend practice? I think a good way of looking at the potential impact is to place the Nike case sort of in the timeline of recent developments in the law for motions to amend. And the trend has really been towards easing the burden a little bit on patent owners. So the Aqua Products decision I mentioned, shifting the burden to petitioners, not patent owners. The PTAB's motion to amend pilot program, giving patent owners the option for a preliminary opinion from the board and even a potential do-over. Maybe even the change in the claim construction standard from broadest reasonable interpretation to Phillips. These are all developments that make it easier on patent owners at the motion to amend stage. And so where does Nike versus Adidas fit in this trend? It appears to put a little bit of a speed bump in the course of these developments, making it easier for patent owners to prevail on a motion to amend. It's not necessarily pro-petitioner. It's just more of a chip on the scale weighing against the patent owner. And that's because if a petitioner does a bad job in opposing a motion to amend, the board can pick up the slack, maybe plug a hole in the petitioner's arguments by relying on other evidence of record. So for the patent owner, there might be times after this case where it feels a little bit like being the visiting team in a basketball game, where you feel like you need to overcome the home team and the referees in order to win. The Federal Circuit, of course, imposed some procedural safeguards under the APA to prevent a patent owner from getting surprised by an unpatentability finding that it couldn't see coming. And Judge Stoll mentioned two of those options for the board. The board could instruct the parties to address the new issue at oral argument, or the board could authorize supplemental briefing. And these are things that the board has often been doing already, for example, like when an important federal circuit decision comes out late in an IPR proceeding and the board has questions about how it might affect the case. For a sua sponte on patentability issue, however, a patent owner might not like these two options very much. For example, the patent owner might not have the ability to submit a responsive expert declaration, which is what the patent owner would generally have an opportunity to do if the prior art was asserted by the petitioner rather than by the board at a late stage in the IPR proceeding. Beyond the motions to amend practice, how do you think this decision fits into the bigger picture of jurisprudence around the PTAB's powers? 
I think it's a rare endorsement of the board exercising its discretion to act on its own in adjudicating patentability issues in an IPR proceeding. The Federal Circuit and even the Supreme Court have repeatedly emphasized the nature of IPRs as being adversarial proceedings and has routinely vacated or reversed the board when it tries to go and do something outside of what the parties are disputing. And I can give you two quick examples. One is the Magnum Oil case, which held that the board, in evaluating original claims of an issued patent, the board cannot go and raise issues that could have been but were not raised by a petitioner. And in that case, the board relied on a prior art ground that was different from the one that the petitioner asserted. So Magnum Oil limited the scope of the proceeding to what the petitioner argued in the petition, rejecting the board's attempt to broaden it to encompass other patentability issues. In the SAS case, which went all the way to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court held that the petitioner is the master of its petition, just like a district court plaintiff is the master of its complaint. The board had been evaluating petitions in a piecemeal manner, instituting sometimes on some claims, but not all, depending on the board's individual assessment of the likelihood of success of proving unpatentability for some claims versus others. And the Supreme Court held that that was improper. And so now, if the board institutes, it must do so on all claims challenged by the petitioner. So again, the court is telling the board that it cannot change the scope of the proceeding from what the petitioner argued. So Nike is a rare endorsement of giving the board the ability to go forth and adopt arguments based on the record that the petitioner did not make. I think this goes back to the unique situation of a motion to amend. An issued patent, in some respects, can be considered a bargain between the patent owner and the public. And so do we really want amended claims coming out of the IPR proceedings that have not really undergone agency scrutiny? And the answer in view of Nike seems to be no. Okay, so when it comes to motions to amend practice, what are some of the best practices for litigants? Well, for a petitioner, there's probably very little change. As a petitioner, you would still bear the burden of proof under Aqua Products. And so it makes sense to keep opposing motions to amend and doing the best job you can in raising viable unpatentability challenges, whether based on prior art or 112 grounds. The board is going to continue primarily focusing on the arguments and theories raised by a petitioner in its opposition to a motion to amend. So there is still a very high level of importance on the petitioner's arguments. From a petitioner's perspective, I simply would not count on the board fixing your mistakes or omissions in opposing a motion to amend. The judges have a large caseload and it's probably unreasonable to expect the board to try to fix every deficient argument raised by a petitioner. But there is, of course, that possibility now that the board could step in and remedy a deficiency or an omission in a petitioner's arguments. One interesting aspect of this might come up when the petitioner intentionally avoids arguing a particular point. For example, what the state of the art showed at a particular time or what a particular prior art reference discloses. Petitioner might have a motivation not to raise particular arguments that could boomerang back on the petitioner in another case because what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. So the petitioner might actually end up being unhappy if the board identifies and adopts a particular finding that knocks out a patent owner's amended claims because that finding could also have an adverse effect on the petitioner in another proceeding. 
Let's now look at this from a patent owner's perspective. For a patent owner, there's perhaps some increasing value now in being very thorough and very comprehensive in a motion to amend. To the extent you can, it may make sense to address prior art of record beyond what the petitioner asserted in its grounds. It may also be important to cite and then distinguish additional prior art known to the patent owner that was not already of record. The more comprehensive the patent owner can be in accurately addressing known prior art, the less the board may be inclined to go off on its own to find unpatentability on a new ground that neither party addressed during the IPR. Of course, if you as a patent owner receive an order from the board identifying a new patentability issue consistent with Nike and requesting discussion of it during oral argument, or perhaps supplemental briefing, it's probably not that hard to read between the lines. You're going to be a little bit behind the eight ball. The success of your motion to amend may very well depend on that issue that the board has identified and it's critical to put your best arguments forward. The time period for doing so could be very short, only a matter of a week or two. And so there will be a premium on counsel's ability to quickly develop and present compelling arguments on a very short schedule. If you think that the issue needs or deserves expert testimony or other evidence, it may be necessary to quickly organize a conference call with the board to ensure that the new evidence will be authored. All right. We'll leave it there, Pierre. Thank you so much. Thank you. Our guest has been Pierre DeRue, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com.